this event for the power industry is going to make it have a more green generation mix. Perhaps that change of tone will change thinking in US corporations. To try and get renewable sources to more than 50% by 2030, that shouldn't be underestimated. COVID-19 has changed almost every aspect of our lives. It's changed almost every industry too, resulting in companies having to duck and dive to keep their businesses afloat and relevant for a post-pandemic world. In this series, we're looking at individual sectors to see how they're managing the coronavirus and to get an idea of the innovations that are likely to endure once the pandemic has passed. The Dow, S&P 500 and NASDAQ all took major hits as a global glut in oil supply and low demand for fuel sent stock prices plummeting. Today, energy. As economies locked down, demand, most notably for oil, plummeted. In a bizarre twist, the price for oil went below zero. It was a shock to producers already struggling with their role in a world increasingly worried about climate change. Some of them are already announcing their future won't include fossil fuels. Global investment in the energy industry is around $1.5 trillion a year. The knock-on effects to the wider global economy will be significant. So what has the pandemic done to our consumption of energy? How much and from where? What does it mean for the producers, the suppliers and the utility companies? And what does talk of a green recovery mean for the future of the industry? Listen on to find out. With me today are three of Fidelity's energy experts. Tom Robinson, an analyst and portfolio manager who looks at European energy. Tom, welcome to you. Uh, Can you tell us a number that explains something of the scale of what's been happening to the industry recently? Yeah, hi, Richard. So my number is uh, $42 billion. That's a lot. It is a lot. That is the combined write-offs of oil and gas assets that BP and Shell expect to take their second quarter results. In one quarter? In a single quarter, yeah. Thank you very much. That's a number to remember. Uh, Joining Tom from Toronto is a fixed income analyst with a focus on power and the midstream companies that get fuel from the producers to the consumers in North America. Christine Miyagashima. Christine, what's the figure that stopped you in your tracks recently? My number is 8%. And what's that? So that is the fall in CO2 emissions expected this year as a result of the lockdowns and the subsequent changes in energy use. And this is the biggest year-on-year reduction ever, and six times that of the previous record caused by the global financial crisis in 2009. A very positive number. Finally, we have an equity analyst and portfolio manager, Paul Gooden. Paul, welcome to you. You cover the US energy producers. Give us your number. Hi there, Richard. Yeah, my number is minus 37.6. And this is the WTI spot oil price on April the 20th. Um, And that is the first time we've had a negative US oil price, certainly in all the data I've seen going back to the early 1800s. And not just any old uh, minus price, but minus $37. It it fell an awful lot, didn't it? Yeah. Well, thank you all for for joining me today. Now, Tom, this sector covers producers of coal, oil, gas, hydropower, nuclear, wind, solar, tidal, biofuels. I'm sure there's more, but we've only got one podcast. Before the pandemic, how was it growing? What What did the industry look like? Yeah, so the, the energy system globally is vast, as you say. And when we talk about energy, we talk about sort of every single molecule and electron that, that we use in, in everyday life, from oil to nuclear to solar and everything else in between. So that 
the long-term growth rate for energy is about 2% um, every year. So I've done that for the last 20 years. And one of the ways I like to think about it is that's in between the rate of population growth, which is about 1%, um, and the rate of uh, global GDP growth, which is 3 to 4%. Well, we heard those numbers in the introduction and the, the stunning impact that the shutdown has had on energy demand. Um, Christine, how did that play out um, over the past few months? So just thinking about the impact of the coronavirus and the lockdowns on oil demand in particular, this is focusing on oil demand versus energy demand. So global oil demand, according to the IEA, is around half related to mobility. And mobility, by that I mean 45% is linked to road transport, 8% to airlines, and 4% to shipping. So at the peak of the coronavirus disruption in April, global oil demand was down 29 million barrels a day, which is a little over a quarter of what it averaged in 2019. It's easy to see uh, when we take apart those different components of mobility how both the immediate disruption would have affected those and then potentially changing consumer behavior going forward. So on road, more companies are likely to adopt working from home after they see the cost savings, the productivity possible with people not being in an office. Consumers' behavior is likely changing too as they realize they can do things like take an exercise class without taking a drive. There's much more things that, they can, that can be bought online. Air, it's no controversial statement to say that air travel budgets have been slashed, but it's also something to say that the airlines are facing very deep liquidity crises right now. And we know this because they're issuing convertible bonds and lots of emergency high yield bonds to try to shore up liquidity until things come back. But from what all, all I've seen, global air travel is really not going to sustain a full recovery till 2023. And so if airlines are tight on liquidity, they're most likely going to cut routes and reduce services, which also will serve to lessen the demand from that sector for oil the way it has been normally. And then shipping, I mean, it's self-evident, less cruising, impact on global trade, but also there's a localization of supply chains, which is a potential long-term consumer behavior change that would impact this particular segment. I mean, it's a small segment, but their demand for oil going forward. So Different scenarios you can run. I've seen external scenarios of a potential 3 million per day barrels per day, potential reduction, 5 million barrels per day, potential reduction. And generally it's split two-thirds the current disruption we're facing and then one-third permanent changes in consumer behavior. So that's how I'm thinking about it. It sounds pretty tough. Uh, Tom, you, were, you wanted to come in just there. Yeah, I was just going to add that, you know, we see this across this sort of short-term cyclical impact across a number of different sectors. And the way we use uh, energy is changing. You know, right now, about 40% of the world's energy is consumed in the power sector. 25% is industry and just under 20% is transport. So we spend a lot of time on, on transport, but there's, there are profound changes, both short-term and long-term, happening both in, in those other sectors as well. And one other point, if, if I may, is just to give the audience a sense of how much energy we use every single day. So we use, on average, 22,000 kilowatt hours per person per year. That's about equivalent of driving your car 18,000 miles. So it's like doing you know, London to Madrid 18 times. And that's the global average. A European citizen uses about twice the global average, and a US citizen uses about four times the global average. So this is a, uh, a truly global issue and I think impacts 
multiple regions, geographies and individual sectors. It does seem to reach into every single corner of, um, of what we do. Paul, um, Christine sort of touched on this a little a moment ago, but tell me about the traditional producers, the big oil companies. Um, how are they managing this uncertainty? Um, so important, as Tom just explained, in so many different ways, and yet very significantly um, affected by, what, by what's going on. Sure. So the first thing you're seeing them do, um, if they're able to, is shut in production. It's just not economical. You know, if, if, if you can delay selling your oil for a couple of months and you can avoid the real trough in prices, it's better to delay selling the barrels. So a number of companies are shutting in production. You're now beginning to see some of that unwind. Um, the second thing that they're doing is aggressively hoarding liquidity and, and cutting capex. And you know they're seeing the price signals that the market's giving them in terms of the oil price, um, and they're responding to that. So if you look at the US rig count, for example, year to date, it's down by two thirds. If you look at international capex this year, it's down around 15%. And so supply is responding to the, the, the decline in demand that we've seen. I mean, it sounds like a disastrous year. There's no way around um, around that. What are your companies expecting in terms of the recovery? Are they going to go back to where they were before, or has this, you know, brought forward peak oil? The idea that we've we've reached the limit of how much we're going to be taking out of uh, out of the earth. I think many of them are quite pragmatic, and they will respond to the oil price that the market gives them. Some of them will hedge. And you're seeing, for example, the US shell companies aggressively hedge for the second half and into 2021. But, you know, yeah, many of them will just respond to the oil price that they're giving and, and, and they will adjust the capex levels and the activity levels accordingly. Some of the larger integrated companies, particularly the Europeans, um, are, are starting to pivot towards renewables. And I know that's something that we'll, we'll touch on later. So the market took an enormous hit, but prices will rebound, general trends will resume. So there's a big cyclical element to all of this. But Tom, has the commodity price crash forced the industry to reevaluate the structural shift to green energy? Yeah, for some companies, absolutely. And they, they, they tend to be the larger European oil majors, so BP Shell, Total. And I think what has happened is that the really the demand shock from the pandemic has accelerated strategies that were already in place. And what the companies are trying to do is align their long-term emission targets or ambitions to be net zero by 2050, which is pretty much in line with EU policy. So I think for those large companies, you're going to see a period of profound change, significant restructuring, changing the way they allocate capital, uh, changing the way they distribute <laughs> surplus cash flow to, to shareholders. You know, there's kind of two points I think are quite interesting in this. One is the success from a sort of societal perspective depends on, on how they choose to transition. Um, so if you take somebody like Shell, they supply about 3% of the world's energy uh, and about 1% of the world's oil. So if they were you know, to choose to divest, partially divest some of those assets, the emissions doesn't necessarily stop. Um, it, it just moves from their balance sheet to somebody else's. And then the other sort of overriding part to it is, you know, will this create shareholder value? You know, these are primarily income and value stocks and creating an entirely new business from a mature declining business is expensive. It takes a lot, a lot of capital and a lot of time. Uh, and the starting point is okay, um, but, you know, balance sheets could be stronger. 
So one of the things that I think we're seeing happening is that uh, the income part of the equation is shrinking and the value part of the equation is increasing. So the role that these companies have played in portfolios um, is, is changing, is having to be reassessed at the moment, which must be causing some disruption to their, even more disruption perhaps, to their, to their share prices. Yes, that's right. It's As part of the transition, they almost need to ap- appeal to an entirely new shareholder base. Something that would have been a, a shoe-in in, a, in an income fund or a value fund may no longer be the case. And you mentioned there that the crisis has um, accelerated trends that were already happening. And I must say that's a, a theme in these podcasts, that we're, we're hearing similar stories from different sectors, completely different sectors. Does that mean that in terms of the, the, the greening um, and the decarbonisation, that that will categorically happen sooner than planned, that this is almost, this is, this is the disruption which is allowing that big change to, um, to happen? There's a sort of human behaviour aspect to this, I think. You know, when your world is turned upside down by something like a pandemic and you're forced to change and forced to do new things um, that you maybe wouldn't otherwise have done, I think taking on big change doesn't feel so daunting. Now, today versus pre-COVID, you know, the economics of the energy transition haven't really changed. The policy support hasn't really changed a lot. The announcements that we've seen were already in place, already part of plans that have already been launched prior to COVID. But I think it just builds up this sense of goodwill um, and a pro-change attitude. I think, I think that's what we're seeing. Is that something you're seeing, Christine, in North America, the acceleration and then the goodwill that, um, that, that Tom's talking about? Yeah, I would just like to bring up the example of the power sector, for instance. So the power sector, the impact versus that on the oil and gas sector, it was more muted. When I was speaking to my companies in the midst of the pandemic, they expected power demand to be down 5 to 7% for the year. You know, there's some underlyings involved there. Commercial industrial power demand is a lot lower. Businesses are closed. Offices are closed. They don't need air conditioning for the summer. But then residential power demand is up. And for the utilities, residential power is actually higher margins. So if there's one area that they would prefer to be stronger, it is residential. I understand looking at the figures now, power demand is down 5.4% from where it was last year. So interestingly, when you look at the mix of power generation in the U.S. and how that's changed, gas renewables uh, and uh, solar, they've, they've stayed fairly steady. Nuclear has held share, but the share of coal has decreased significantly, whereas it made 25% of the generation mix last year. Now it's only 17.5%. And you could argue that that was due to things outside of the coronavirus because there were already policies in place to phase out coal. The Obama administration had done some very big push uh, right away as, as soon as he was brought into power. However, I would argue that the decline in energy demand is actually helping or hastening uh, move away from coal because these coal plants are generally not economic anymore. Even though coal is a fairly cheap fuel source, all these regulations over the years, Obama years, et cetera, have made coal plants quite expensive to run because you have to have scrubbers on them, socks and knocks to make them compliant. And so if your power demand is lower already, then these economically challenged plants are increasingly non-viable and they could be closed early. I haven't seen any coal plants in the U.S. close early yet, but we're early days into it. But there have been some coal plants in Sweden, for instance, that have closed early because of just lack of power demand. So I do think that this event for the power industry is going to make it have a more green 
generation mix than you would have seen otherwise. Although what you're talking about there is the, the legacy of the Obama administrations. And Paul, coming to you, that the current US administration has been a supporter of, of fossil fuels, uh, a supporter of, of coal miners. Uh, how do you see the, the renewable energy markets in the US, you know, after three and a half years of President Trump? I guess the the tone is set at the top. And you know, whereas in Europe, there's a lot of political support for the Paris climate deal, Trump is against the Paris climate deal. And, and that sets up a, a different tone in US politics. And I think it's no coincidence that when you look at the big oil companies in Europe and the US, they've got quite different strategies. So to kind of bookend the strategies, you've got the pivot strategy at one end, and then you've got the carry on as normal and sort of liquidate yourself over the long term strategy at the other end. And, you know, the Europeans are at the pivot end of the strategy. And as Tom kind of referred to, there's a question about can you create value as you're doing that pivot? And then the other end of, of, of the spectrum would be, let's say, a, a ConocoPhillips that's kind of saying we're going to generate a lot of cash we're not going to grow production, we're not going to diversify into renewables, we're going to return that free cash flow to you. And if you, Mr. Investor, want to own a renewable company or a utility, you can do that at the the portfolio level. You don't need us to do that for you. I think the question for those companies who are sort of following this kind of long-term liquidation strategy, and I think it's it's a reasonable strategy because we're going to be using oil for a long time, but the question is, do you have the resource base and the cost structure to, to, to be able to do that. And then, you know, lots of other companies like a Chevron and Exxon are sort of more towards the, um, the Conoco strategy, but they've all got different kind of um, variants. Now, now of course, if, um, if Biden wins the election in November, he's committed to sign up to Paris, you know, net zero emissions by 2050 at the latest. And, you know, perhaps that change of tone will change thinking in U.S. corporations. I'm just going to add from a European perspective that I think companies do tend to follow consumers and and government policies. And there is really big government support in Europe for this agenda. And um, that's accelerating. So we had the the Green New Deal, which launched in December, and that builds on the... uh, 2030 framework that was adopted in, I think it was 2014. There are really two big goals to the Green New Deal. One is for the entire um, continent to be net zero by 2050. And then an interim target of at least a 50% emission reduction by 2030. So the European oil majors um, are global companies, global integrated companies across all the different value chains, but they're domiciled in Europe. So that, I think that pressure does cascade down. And something that the American companies aren't facing in quite the same way, that pressure, Christine. Currently, no. But um, we, all of us in the energy space, are doing a lot of thinking as as to what a Biden presidency could mean. Biden presidency accompanied by a Democratic retake of the Senate. And certainly for, for my power companies, that could mean quite a significant change if it is truly a key commitment to reduce GHG emissions um, to zero by 2050, that concurrently will mean that you need much more of your grid be renewables by that time, at least 80%, even though that's not a highlighted policy statement. What that means is there's going to be a lot of capex for the utilities, more building of renewable plants, 
more costs incurred with shutting down the existing coal ones. And generally that CapEx is passed through or fuel costs are are passed through for utilities. And so that could mean higher energy bills for consumers going forward. So it's a it's a crisis, um, but are there benefits that might come as a result of the the COVID crisis in terms of the adoption of clean energy, Paul? I think it's difficult to point to anything concrete and direct, but I think there are some indirect benefits that could hasten uh, an adoption of clean energy and, and renewables. Um, so, firstly, you know, to the extent that governments want to pump pump prime their economies, and to the extent that voters want a a greener society, you can achieve both of those aims through government subsidies and grants for, for clean energy and renewables. And uh, I guess that's what the, the Green New Deal that we heard about uh, earlier is about. I think secondly, also, it kind of reminds everyone that, um, you know, we need to take care of our environment. And, you know, if you don't, um, you know, it, it can come back to bite you, you know, in, in the case of COVID very clearly, and in the case of climate change, you know, down down the line. And then sort of finally, I kind of think that all the volatility that we're seeing in the oil price, you know, partly related to COVID, is very unhelpful. And I think it kind of just increases the the cost of capital that investors are going to apply to, to fossil fuel companies. I would just add to that, that Following on what Paul said, I mean, governments, there are a lot of new spending programs out there to deal with the weakened economic environment. And we've seen some examples, for instance, here in Canada, one of the conditions to be able to apply for a temporary bridge loan for some of the small companies was that they had to begin to do much better reporting on their GHG emissions. Um, I understand the stimulus package in Germany included some provisions for electronic vehicles. There's lots of car-free zones being established here in Toronto, and I understand in London. So there are policy changes that I think have been driven by politicians, consumers, noticing how much healthier this period has been for the environment, which is that 8% GHG emissions number that I was alluding to at the beginning of the call. So we've covered Europe, we've covered North America. Um, What's the picture like in Asia? It has been one of the biggest polluters, um, if you look at countries like like China. Um, How has that been changed in in any way by the COVID crisis um, or, or patterns that were developing before that? Tom? Yeah, it's, it's a great question and it's, it's a huge challenge. So, so China is the number one consumer of energy, about 25% of, of global energy. And if we look at the power sector in China, about 65% of the generation is from coal. And, you know, there's a, a strong economic incentive to, to do that because it's, it's abundant domestically, it's cheap. There's, there's, there's two positives to it. You know, one is that there is a, a coal to gas uh, switching uh, ambition, and that is part of China's five-year plan. And the next five-year plan will be rolled out, I think, later this year. And then secondly, the economics should should switch over at some stage. Um, so there is a pathway where uh, renewable sources um, of power, particularly uh, solar and onshore wind, could reach cost parity with domestic coal sometime around 2025. Um, so that may trigger... Uh, greater adoption of renewables and, and a faster shift away from coal. And is there the same rhetoric around this from the authorities um, or from companies um, in Asia of a realisation of this coming? I think what we can say is that the E within ESG is a 9.5 out of 10 issue in Europe. 
Um, in the US, it's getting more important. It's gone from like a two to a four. I think for a lot of the Asian energy companies, there's more focus on the S and the G. Those are bigger considerations at the moment. So my sense is it's 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 not as on the um, the radar as, as even in the US. Okay. Well, we're going to hear a little bit more about um, the situation in Europe and the Green Deal that we were talking about and what the greening of the recovery might mean for one sector. Boya Shao Robinson is an equity analyst covering European utilities, and here's what she's got to say. Currently, the EU has announced a 750 billion uh, recovery package of which around 30% is believed to be dedicated, especially to green infrastructure projects. So the reason that this will be very positive for the uh, European utility space is because we do need essentially kind of a double to tripling of renewable capacities uh, between now and 2030 for Europe to achieve this decarbonisation and net zero plan. If European utilities do not increase their capex on building renewables in Europe, then the utility majors alone would only account for 20% of the renewable that's needed. Therefore, on the back of this, although we're hearing more uh, new startups that's entering the renewable space, and we're also hearing kind of oil majors' intention to enter the renewable and green infrastructure space, I do believe that the renewable market is currently large enough to accommodate all these newcomers. Boyajar Robinson there on the outlook for European utilities. Now, Tom, how convinced are you that the traditional energy players will fill that gap in the market that Boya refers to? Yeah, I think there is um, room for new entrants into the European power market. So that is an area where the oil and gas companies, have already, some have already been involved for some time. So if you take Equinor, for example, a Norwegian company, you know, they've been operating offshore wind since 2012. So th- there's room for pretty much every participant in this. It's a huge undertaking as well. I mean, we, that shouldn't be underestimated. About 30% of Europe's power comes from renewable sources. And that's including things like hydro in there. If we just look at something like wind, it's closer to 10%. So to try and get that to more than 50% by 2030 uh, involves a staggering amount of capital from private and public sector. So that's the the challenge of of capital. Christine, what are the other challenges that remain for renewable energy? And I suppose, how close do you think that we are to, to overcoming them? Well, I suppose that one challenge that one might think on the face of it uh, is potentially quite a perturbing one is the fact that there are very low commodity prices right now. And so that if renewables are truly a substitution, that would challenge someone wanting to spend you know the large amounts of capex to get those renewable projects online. But that really shouldn't hinder renewables adoption. Oil and renewables, they don't actually, they don't directly compete. So... You may have some oil used for power generation in like a backup system or a backup generator, but generally oil is used for the other things we were mentioning earlier in the call and renewables go for power generation. The reason they get support from the state governments and the federal governments is because that's what consumers want. And so I don't necessarily see lower oil prices impeding just the huge trend in renewables we've seen in the States. And for me, the biggest setbacks or things that might hold it back are the intermittency of renewal of renewable generation and the fact that battery storage, the technology, isn't quite there yet 
to really support a 100% renewables grid. That's, that's what I wanted to ask you about, because you were talking about, both of you were talking about the economics of power generation and, and, and that side of things. But the wind doesn't always blow, the sun doesn't always shine, well, perhaps it does in California. But uh, the, the batteries, ex- explain a little bit there, very briefly, of what still needs to happen to allow a significant shift in, in the source of the power. I mean, so right now it's okay because you still have a mix in the in the grid and you've got basically gas is, is still kind of being the bridging fuel to renewables. And so those plants can fire even when, say, it's nighttime or a calmer day. However, battery storage is developing very fast. It's, I mean, it exists. It's just too expensive right now. And it only represents about 17% of the total installed solar and wind. And I think what the authorities are anticipating is to get to a much more renewable grid by 2050 that the battery technology will have developed to that point to be able to have batteries able to store energy overnight um, in a cost-effective manner. And so, but that, I mean, that'll be key. And if they actually can get battery technology to that level, that's going to have a big impact on power prices in the U.S. and potentially worldwide, and they're going to be lower because of the ability to use kind of free renewable technology uh, to meet most of consumers' energy demands. Okay, so a lot of change, a lot of proper transformation. Paul, what do all of these new strategies mean for investors? Well, I think for investors, uh, most obviously it means you've got to be very careful I think you've got to, for incumbents, you've got to look at the strategies, look at it on that spectrum that we talked about earlier, you know, the pivot strategy or the put yourself into sort of self-liquidation strategy. And you've got to ask yourself, is there going to be value creation as companies embark on that path? And we heard earlier that um, you know some of the Europeans, for example, are exiting fossil fuel assets, well, are you going to get good prices? Some of them might need to make strategic acquisitions in the renewable space. Well, are you going to get good prices on those on, on, on those acquisitions? Um, and might you have to cut the dividend or write down assets on, on, on that path? And, you know, also, you know, for, the, for those companies that are just sort of saying, look, we're going to stick to our knitting, we're going to keep oil production flat, we're going to generate the free cash flow, we're going to distribute it to you. Um, that all sounds well and good. But perhaps society and investors are going to attribute a higher cost of capital to those companies. And then, of course, you know, there's the pure play renewable companies. You know, the renewable industry is traditionally plagued by quite low barriers to entry. So as investors, we need to think to ourselves, you know, firstly, you know, does this particular renewable technology have a good growth outlook? And some of them are better than others. Um, but importantly, as investors, you know, we want moats, we want barriers to entry. Tom, you mentioned at the start of this conversation the billions of dollars of value that the likes of BP and Shell are um, going to have to wipe off their books um, in only just one quarter. I'm still reeling from that. Um, is that a temporary price of the pivot to new business models? Yeah, so the write-off part is um, it's a consequence of a few things, really. You know, one is it's a consequence of the past. Um, so it's capital that may have been allocated unwisely. There's a catch-up effect there. Secondly, it's... Um, a reflection on how these companies see the future. And there's two parts to it, really. One is that they see a period where there'll be lower commodity prices for their, their core business for a long period of time. And they see 
much higher growth rates in uh, other sources of energy. So it's a it's partly um, a reflection of the past, and it's also a statement of intent. Well, coming to Christine, do you see uh, much of a difference on the credit side when you're comparing these older, dirtier companies to newer, greener ones? On US midstream, I have to admit, I don't see a discernible pricing differential uh, between my stronger ESG companies and my weaker. But I have to think that given the space is always starved for capital, potentially more starved for capital after what's happened with the coronavirus, ESG credentials are going to be increasingly important for the midstream providers. So even though the sector is not really there yet in terms of disclosure or thinking about it, I'm expecting that to improve and potentially get priced into the sector. U.S. utilities is a different story because you can make a cogent economic argument if you are at the forefront of climate change and ESG thinking, then you will most likely have a better relation with your relationship with your regulator and with your governor. It's politics. People care. Consumers care. People want to buy green energy. And Paul, finally coming to you, are you seeing a similar um, story on the equity side? I would say we're at the stage now in the equities whereby companies are getting incremental pressure from shareholders to provide disclosure um, and to provide disclosure on a consistent basis so that shareholders can compare good companies to bad companies. And I would say in the last two years, there's been a big improvement in terms of disclosure levels. Um, I don't really think that certainly within the US, we're seeing much discrimination yet in terms of valuation because of things like emissions intensity of of production. Um, perhaps that will happen in the future. Investors are more concerned about, you know, dividends and balance sheets um, and free cash flow and just coping with the, you know, huge volatility we've seen in the last kind of year or so. I suppose an area where you are perhaps beginning to see it reflected a little bit is, is actually up in Canada um, for some of the pure play oil sands companies, whereby, um, you know, you are seeing quite attractive free cash flow yields. And partly that's driven, I think, by some investors saying, Look, you know the the carbon intensity of production up in Canada is is high, but within the US, I, I don't think we're really seeing much much discrimination yet. Okay, so lots more change to come in uh, a sector that has completely been turned upside down in the past few months. That brings us to the end of this podcast. Thank you very much to my guests, Paul Gooden, Christine Miyagishima, and Tom Robinson. You can hear more from Fidelity's investment team on the COVID-19 crisis, the market response and investment implications on both our Rich Pickings and Fidelity Answers podcast channels. Just search for those titles in your podcast app. And you can also read all of the latest thinking online at fidelityinternational.com. The producer was Seb Morton-Clark with production support from Alex Wilcox and Madison Fletcher. From all of us, though, goodbye. This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied on by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without prior permission of fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please see our website, professionals.fidelity.co.uk forward slash about hyphen fidelity.